Chapter Forty Three of North Pole Voyages by Zaharia A. Mudge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty Three The Fearful Situation. One of the anchors of the Polaris, in starting on the night of the separation, tore off a large piece of the floe with three men upon it. As the Polaris swept past them, they cried out in agony, What shall we do? Captain Buddington shouted back, We can do nothing for you. You have boats and provisions. You must shift for yourselves. This was the last word from the Polaris. Seeing the sad plight of these men, Captain Tyson, who from the first had been upon the floe, took the donkey, a little scow which had been tossed upon the ice, and attempted to rescue them. But the donkey almost at once sunk, and he jumped back upon the floe and launched one of the boats. Some of the other men started in the other boat at the same time, and the three men were soon united to the rest of the flow party. One of the last things Tyson drew out of the way of the vessel as its heel was grinding against the parting flow were some musk-ox skins. They lay across a widening crack, and in a moment more would have been sunk in the deep or crushed between colliding hummocks. Rolled up in one of them, and cosily nestling together were two of Hans' children. Does not God care for children? Our darkness and storm-beset party did not dare to move about much, for they could not tell the size of the ice on which they stood, nor at what moment they might step off into the surging waters. So they rolled themselves up in the muskox skins and slept. Captain Tyson alone did not lie down, but walked cautiously about during the night. The morning came, and with it a revelation of their surroundings. Huge bergs were in sight which had in the storm and darkness charged upon the flow, and caused the breaking up of the preceding night. It had been a genuine arctic assault. Their own raft was nearly round, and about four miles in circumference, and immovably locked between several grounded bergs, it was snow-covered, and full of hillocks and intervening ponds of water, which the brief summer sun had melted from their sides. Those who had laid down were covered with snow, and looked like little mounds. When the party roused, the first thing they thought of was the ship. But she was nowhere to be seen. A lead opened to the shore inviting their escape to the land. Captain Tyson ordered the men to get the boats in immediate readiness, reminding them of the uncertainty of the continued opening of the water, and of the absolute necessity of instant escape from the flow, in order to regain the ship and save their lives. But the men were in no hurry, and obedience to orders had long been out of their line. They were hungry and tired, and were determined to eat first, and they didn't want a cold meal, and so they made tea and chocolate, and cooked canned meat. This done, they must change their wet clothes for dry ones. In the meantime the drifting ice was in a hurry, and had shut up in part the lead. But Tyson was determined to try to reach the shore, though the difficulties had so greatly increased during the delay. The boats were laden and launched, but when they were about halfway to the shore, the lead closed, and they returned to the floe and hauled up the boats. 
Just then the Polaris was seen under both steam and sail. She was eight or ten miles away, but signals were set to attract her attention, and she was watched with a glass with intense interest, until she disappeared behind an island. Soon after, Captain Tyson sent two men to a distant part of the floe to a house made of poles, which he had erected for the stores, soon after they began to be thrown from the vessel. In going for these poles, the steamer was again seen, apparently fast in the ice behind the island. She could not then come to the flow party, being beset and without boats, and so Tyson ordered the men to get the boats ready for another attempt to reach the land, and thus, in time, connect with the vessel. He lightened the boats of all articles not absolutely necessary, that they might be drawn to the water safely and with speed. He then went ahead to find the nearest and best route for embarking. The grounded bergs, in the meanwhile, relaxed their grasp upon the explorer's ice-raft, and they began to drift southward. With malicious intent, on came a terrific snowstorm at the same time. Tyson hurried back to hasten up the men. They were in no hurry, but with grumbling and trifling finally made ready, as they pretended one boat, crowded with everything both needful and worthless. When at last it was dragged to the water's edge, it was ascertained that the larger part of the oars and the rudder had been left at the camp far in the rear. In this crippled condition the boat was launched, but not only oars and rudder, but will on the part of the men was wanting. So the boat was drawn upon the floor, and left with all its valuables near the water. The night was approaching, the storm was high, and the men were weary, so no attempt was made to return it to the old camp. All went back to the middle of the floe. Tyson, Mr. Myers, one of the scientific corps, and the Eskimo, made a canvas shelter using the poles as a frame, and the others camped near them. Captain Tyson, after eating a cold supper, rolled himself in a musk-ox skin, and lay down for the first sleep he had sought for forty-eight hours. His condition seemed to be a specially hard one. While, on the night of the great disaster, he was striving to save the general stores, the saving of which proved the salvation of the company, Others were looking after their personal property, so they had their full supply of furs and firearms, while his were left in the ship. He, however, slept soundly until the morning, when he was startled by a shriek from the Eskimo. The flow had played them arctic trick. It had broken and set the whole party adrift on an ice raft, not more than one hundred and fifty yards square. What remained of their old flow of four miles circumference contained the house made of poles in which remained six bags of bread and the loaded boat in which were the greater part of the valuables here was a fearful state of things yet one boat remained with which they might have gone after the other one but the men seemed infatuated and refused to go away the little raft sailed crumbling as it went assuring its passengers that they must all stow away in their one boat or soon be dropped into the sea. For four days they thus drifted, during which the Eskimo shot several seals. On the twenty-first Joe was using the spyglass and suddenly shouted for joy. He had spied the lost boat 
lodged on a part of the old floe, which had swung against the little raft of our party. He and Captain Tyson, with the dog team, instantly started for it, and after a hard pull, returned with boat and cargo. Soon after, their old floe, in an accommodating mood, thrust itself against the one they were on. The boats were passed over, and everything was again together, boats and provisions. Let us now look around upon our party more critically. The whole number was twenty, including the ten weeks old Charlie Polaris, who of course was somebody. As we have stated, all the Eskimo were of this party. Both the cook and steward were here. Much the larger number of the dogs belonging to the expedition were on the floe, but no sledges. Fortunately, in addition to the two boats, one of the kayaks had been saved. It might, in the skillful hands of a Joe, meet some emergency. As there was only faint hope now of again seeing the Polaris, and as their ice-boat seemed to sail farther and farther from the shore, they began to make the best winter quarters their circumstances allowed. Under the direction of Joe, an architect and builder, several snow-houses were put up. One was occupied by Captain Tyson and Mr. Myers, one by Joe and family, a larger one by the men, and one was used for the provisions, and one for a cook-house. All these were united by an arched passageway. Hans and family located their house apart from the others, but near. The huts erected, their next pressing need was sledges. The men, with great difficulty, dragged some lumber from the old storehouse, and a passable one was made. Though the quantity of provisions was quite large, yet with nineteen persons to consume it, not to reckon little Charlie's mouth, who looked elsewhere for his supply, and with possibly no addition for six months, it was alarmingly small. Besides, in their unprincipled greed, some of the party broke into the storeroom, and took more than a fair allowance. So the party agreed upon two meals a day, and a weighed allowance at each meal. It was now the last of October. The sun had ceased to show his pleasant face, and the long night was setting in. To add to their discomfort, the question of light and fuel assumed a serious aspect. The men, either from want of skill or patience, or both, did not succeed well in using seal-fat for these purposes in the Eskimo fashion. So they began, with a reckless disregard to their future safety, to break up and burn one of the boats. Hans, with a true Eskimo instinct, when the short allowance pinched him, began to kill and eat the dogs. He might be excused, however. Four children, with their faces growing haggard, looked to him for food. Thus situated, our flow party drifted far away from the land, drifting on and on, whether they slept or woke, drifting they knew not to what end. End of chapter 43